0: I think that our green school is applying recycling, reusing. A uh, green school is a, a, a school that, that, that helps the environment. But we have to consider how much does all this electricity cost, count, like, in comp- like, uh, and to uh, the environment in comparison uh, cool to, the, to the to like, like, the like, takes care of the environment. It's an
1: environmental school me, so can, uh, that has a lot of plants. A lot, we're on uh, our way, but
2: we definitely cannot qualify as a green
1: school. involved, and I think That's that we it. should make it not something that it is. Forced, but... like what? Do
2: to Are you
3: concerned about the air you breathe? Do you ever wonder about the future of our oceans and all the plastics and pollution being gathered there? So it seems, most people we've come in contact with generally do care and want what's best for our dear Mother Earth. However, in our fast-paced lives of 2018, it seems we suffer a bit from the classic knowing and doing gap. The challenge of turning knowledge about how to enhance an experience or situation into actions consistent with that knowledge. This came out of a study in Harvard. Simply put, we know we're contributing to global warming, we know we're polluting our oceans and atmosphere, we know it's good to recycle, but our actions are not consistent with doing something about it to improve. Working at the American School Foundation of Monterey, we want to explore what people think a green school is. We want to find out the challenges institutions face in overcoming the knowing and doing gap. We're going to share interviews from students, parents, teachers, and directors about their definition of a green school and the challenges to become one. We'll talk to true innovators and schools who seem to have lessened the gap between knowing what's right and stepping up and taking action. We'll take
4: a look at the mothership of all green schools, the Green School of Bali. When we approached the subject of green schools early on, we decided to ask students and staff how they would define a green school, and if they believe we were one. It hit me after reviewing those interviews that I, like all of them, had my own personal notion of what a green school is, but no idea where the term came from or how long has it been in our culture. I mean, the name makes sense, green, but since when have we been using it? Green politics, also known as ecopolitics is a political ideology that aims to create an ecologically sustainable society rooted in environmentalism, nonviolence, social justice, and grassroots democracy. It began taking shape in the Western world in the 1970s, and since then, green parties have developed and established themselves in many countries around the globe and have achieved some electoral success.
3: So there's been green movements going on forever. Um, You can find many different examples from all over the world, but we traced the original kind of green party or politics back to Germany in the 1970s. And eventually, these green parties spread into the Americas by the
4: 1980s. And it wasn't until, like, I think 1992 was the first time that they joined in the Earth Summit in 1992 in Rio de Janeiro. Yeah, so
3: in 1992, they came up with, at this summit, they came up with what's called the Rio Declaration. Basically, uh, it's a non-binding kind of commitment to uh, sustainable development and environmentalism. So they identified a need at this time that, you know, we're ruining our environment, so let's bring some people together and and commit to some action. So that was the first one back in uh, 1992. And then from there, we went to the Kyoto Protocol, which was more focused around climate change. Started in 1997 was a legally binding um, treaty almost that uh, countries had to reduce their emissions by 2020, which we're approaching really soon. Uh, Long story short though, many countries had a hard time doing this and it was very hard to track. And that leads us to 2015 and into the Paris Agreement. Now, the two key differences, or the one key difference between the Kyoto and the Paris Agreement is that uh, Kyoto was more top-down, where they decided every country must do this. Um, And the difference in the Paris Agreement was each country kind of internally decided what was reasonable for their country to commit to.
4: They're not doing the same thing each country, but just like kind of like honestly saying like, no, sorry, this is as much as we can do. This is doable, right? This is reachable.
3: Yeah, and I think that comes out of just, I think maybe they learned from the Kyoto uh, Protocol that, um, well, one, a lot of countries end up dropping out or they just weren't able to produce the results they they intended. Um, So I think it was just a way to like, okay, we need to do different to make it more effective. So I thought that was interesting.
4: The agreement aims to respond to the global climate change threat by keeping a global temperature rise this century well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Well, I think uh, I think what they're trying to say is like
3: in 100 years, so let's say in in. 2090, 2095, my, maybe my granddaughter or grandson is kicking around. They want to make sure that the temperatures haven't increased two degrees over that time.
4: How, how big is that, two de- like 2 degrees sounds tiny, you know, like, sounds small.
3: Yeah, I mean, you jump in a pool and it's a 2 degrees difference from, you know, the day before. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You're probably not going to notice.
4: I like the idea that it sounds small because, like, let's tackle it, right? Like, uh... Well, yeah,
1: it's
3: huge. Although,
4: apparently, it's huge. <laughs> it's not yeah, small.
3: It is, it's huge. And that's why these 195 countries come together at the Paris Agreement and say, look, like, we need to do something about it. because. Really it comes down to like, how is it going to impact people, how is it going to impact sea level, ice caps, weather, how is it going to impact the economy. So that's why these countries got together and they're,
4: they're kind of created this platform. So going back to the Earth Summit in Rio, we can trace the addition of another organization into the mix. One that is essential to the dialogue that we're trying to have here. Um, that is because schools, schools join the conversation. See, at that gathering in 1992, education was recognized as an essential element to generate awareness and cultivate understanding on issues prevalent to our earth. Finally, education is recognized as being important in this. <laughs> well, well not only recognized, but it also puts the pressure on, like, um, what are you going to do, right? Uh, <laughs> so, policy,
3: I guess, has to start somewhere. There are many groups and organizations serving in, in K-12 schools, internationally and within the United States, Canada, all over the world. Um, these groups encase different topics concerning environmental certifications. Um, we, we've got different certifications here at our school, Um, initiatives and projects, all while passing on the students some sort of responsibility uh, to take the torch and keep moving forward, connecting globally. Take the Green School Alliance for example. The Alliance connects more than 12,900 sustainability champions, students and teachers, across 9,000 plus schools, districts and organizations from 48 U.S. states and 90 countries. Uh, There's a great place to visit. They have a website To get any ideas, uh, join other kind of make connections, join other projects. But uh, they're a great resource, the Green School Alliance, as a group that's trying to connect globally and and make a difference.
4: Because you'll you'll be surprised. Like um, what I found out is that everybody has their own version of what green is, and like through the interviews that we conducted, and hopefully if you stay with us long enough through. Um, the, all, the, all, all of the material that we have, we find out that not everybody is connected. That word is key, like everybody has their own version. And it's not necessarily a good one, like uh, a lot of people think that um, green is having plants. Um, luckily for us, in some cases, there's people who really know what they're talking about.
5: My name is Mariana Lozano. I am a senior and I'm currently the president of the Green Team.
3: Okay, so Mariana, what is a green school?
5: When I think of a green school, I think about an environment where students are aware of their impacts in the environment. So, for example, a green school is a school that tries to involve students as much as possible in the green movement, whether it may be in education or extracurricular courses
3: why did you particularly kind of uh, particularly I don't know want to become part of the green team you're now the president and what made you kind of interested in that
5: growing up I had a strong influence by my Canadian teachers that were really involved in the the green team it was actually about seven years ago when it first started in elementary so I got involved in the movement and then I began to see that there wasn't a lot of people participating and I thought that if I was not going to participate, then nobody was going to participate. So that's why through this year, I tried to involve myself as a president and try to have a lot of people involved in this movement because it's very important in the upcoming years that students are involved and keep continuing the work of the green team.
3: What are some examples of some projects you've worked on so far?
5: So for example, during this year, we bought about 100-plus air filtering plants that cleaned out certain chemicals in the air. So what we did is put them indoors, and we have a schedule where students water it to filter out the plants. And also, we have a campaign, which is called the Meatless Mindless Campaign. Due to the race of cattle being the primary source of deforestation, we try to start this campaign to award the public of cutting meat one day a week is much more impactful than driving your car. So it's more about making people aware of what is happening when you consume meat. Wanting to turn them into all vegetarians—it's just a campaign to aware.
3: Um, what challenges have you faced as a student environmental group?
5: So one of the biggest challenges we we have faced is that they always denote us as the hippies, the hippies that want to like change the world that we want to only drink water. Well, and that's one of the biggest um, stereotypes that we want to come forward because. We want to do... We're trying to do stuff that can help out the environment, but sometimes these stereotypes are bringing us down. And also, another challenge that we faced with with the Meatless Money's campaign, here it is very normal that lots of people consume meat, so people... We have had lots of setbacks against the campaign.
3: Okay, thank you. Um, any final thoughts or something you should let us know about kind of a green movement or green team or anything you'd like to share finally?
5: I think that we all have are ways of helping out the environment. We sometimes think it's not gonna be as impactful as we may think. Maybe it's not gonna have a direct impact, but throughout the years, if more people get involved, then the impact will be substantial.
3: That was high school student, Mariana Lozano, president of the American School Foundation in Monterey Green Team. In a later episode, we'll hear more from students like Mariana, who have taken environmental leadership roles within their school community. We look forward to hearing their stories of success, failures, and overall challenges.
4: The green team is not the only major player in our school. Most of the members actually have been exposed to a green culture for years, like kindergarten. And um, actually it's because of the work of a particular group in our community.
1: My name is Lorena Costello. I'm currently helping the green team with the nursery and pre-K area. Uh, I used to be in the Green Team for about six years ago, and when it all started, and it was very interesting to, to be here again.
0: I am Nina Chavarria. I've been participating in the Green Team since uh, well, this is my seventh year, and this year I'm in charge of helping middle school and high school and all the administration and in general everything that can be useful.
3: Okay.
0: Well first it was a teacher's initiative that started at uh, Missouri mm-hmm. and when we, well all Missouri came to Huasteca well there were some parents, some grandmoms moms that started but they have to leave the country. And that's why we were invited first, Cristina Hubert, De Sada, and me. And we started, and then Lore yeah.
1: joined us. Yeah, so it was uh, really our, our intent was to teach the younger children that that it was very easy to be green and that, I don't know, our objective was just to... So that they, when they leave school, they have the chip inside, no? Like mm-hmm. we had to be taught how to be green and yes. what was good for the environment. And our objective is to, for these children, you know, from nursery, that it's a given in them, you know, like spelling or like science. It's, so it's in them. Okay. So this is how it, it all began.
0: Our first thought was just to, as trees, plant a little seed in each kid. So when they went through life, they could remember what they have been taught during school life. So that was our thought.
1: I think one of the most important... Like, I was out of the green team for about three years. Mm-hmm. When I left, it was an organism It was Christine, Nina and myself. And now it's a team of... There's one green mom per each classroom, so we have about 50 green moms that are coming in each month to do a presentation, to do activities with the children. So I think that this involvement of the moms, it is, I think is very important.
3: I guess leader, leading moms in the, as the, the Green Team, I don't
4: know, by the way call it. Uh, how, how do you guys feel about that term? I've always been curious. Are you comfortable being the Green, the, the green yes. Team moms, or, or is it something that you want to just like, okay, uh, we are known by that, but we don't really feel like that's appropriate. Or...
1: I don't think I ever, like, thought about it, because it is, you know, it's... Uh, we are, even if we are, I don't know, a specialist in marketing or accounting, or we're still, we're the green moms. Yeah. <laughs> it's
0: like the ones for <laughs> the PTA moms, or the yeah. hope or values, well... Well, I, I guess that for
4: us it's important to, like, To know that you're comfortable with that, if you or if you are not, just to you know change it and help out. No, I think
1: I like it being a green mom. We haven't (laughs) thought about that. I know that maybe Nena would think you know the sustainable mom, you know, to give it a little. But I think green because we are in elementary. I think green is a really nice friendly friendly Mm -hmm. term for the children. Absolutely. So in your
3: role, what I was going to ask is, um, I guess as leaders. In in, as green moms, what are some like challenges that you face or?
1: Well, I think I think the biggest challenge is like in every job is to uh, you have moms of every style and some moms really want to go beyond. We have a really important mom that has gone beyond to the municipio and wants to do a really big you know whole uh, schools and. And you have the other green mom that says, you know, really is recycling that important? And you're like, yeah, <laughs> it's like the basics. Of course. So yeah, I think that and, and coming up with new ideas because the green team has been here for seven years and we started with uh, a program called Cool the Earth, which was a play that was set on by uh, Mrs. Keller and the and, and all the directives of the school and Mr. how. Uh-huh and uh, how we have to uh, keep getting new ideas to teach the children, like after they, okay, now they know how to reduce, reuse, and recycle. Now what? What comes next? And having them give us ideas of how to improve and be green.
0: For me, the important part is this one, that even though it's a challenge to change the cultural or the mind of the people in this aspect, kids are the most important because they are they become the teachers of their parents of their older brothers or of everyone in the family
1: they are most probably going to be the leaders of tomorrow and they're going to have in their hands the possibility to change from within they're going to have the possibility to change the laws in the government and the way the companies work because most probably some of these children are going to be company owners and they're going to have the power to do it and they're going to, it's going to be a given to them. It's not going to be that hard as it is for companies now to start doing the whole sustainable uh, thing.
0: When we started, I thought that of a green team as a dream. And now I can see through the years that some of the dreams have been coming true. So probably in a, in a short term, we can see
1: more things around. To see the children that have come from elementary are picking up ideas and projects here in middle school, high school. And, and that's, that's really exciting to see that the children that we taught to the three hours are now putting
4: a lot of other things into practice. One of the original Green Team moms, as they are known affectionately in her school, they are the longest running environmental group starting in 1996. I got here in 2000, when would you go here? 2010?
3: 2010, yeah. So the, the moms kind of shape the younger generations and they do a lot of presentations and a lot of campaigns in the elementary. And then kind of in, in the middle school, high school, the kind of have a gradual release of power and the students start managing and taking over the, the, the green team controls, I guess.
4: So we have a generation of students in middle school that have been introduced to the necessity for an environmentally conscious community since they were toddlers. Are they going to be able to change what we clearly have not been able to change yet? Or are they going to be faced with even greater roadblocks, we live in one of the cities with the most polluted air in the world. And that city, at the same time, is expanding at 10 acres per day average. So how is that gonna help fight the pollution? And is that happening only in Monterey or like, is it going on all around the world? Why do we like and share all this information, yet it's too much
3: trouble to have our own supermarket bag Uh, when we go grocery shopping, or our own cup, or our own straw whenever we're out? Why does it feel outrageous to take out meat in the cafeteria on Mondays? And I'm not only talking about kids here. Really, getting so worked up for two meals out of the week, knowing the positive impacts that that it can have, or that you can own, uh, just a fun fact here, Um, Veracruz, the second largest state in Mexico will replace 20% of the meat and other animal products they serve with entirely plant-based foods. Um, So so not only are they affecting the nearly like 1 million meals per year in Veracruz in in the schools there, uh, but the program will, will encourage healthy and sustainable food choices. So that kind of generation of kids in Veracruz Uh, the state government and a lot of you know political people made that decision but they're going to be learning from that
4: you know we we had the luck to just got a conversation with a teacher at the green school of Bali, and Mm -hmm. uh, it's one great example of like taking the united nations to your own backyard and just like committing to do a change
3: yeah i mean they they really they really like nailed it they kind of took a A philosophy and a curriculum, and yeah, the United Nations sustainability goals, and just we're gonna teach this, and we're gonna create, you know, environmental friendly citizens, um, and much more than that uh, through our school. But that's gonna be an interesting chat with him, and and looking at that school as a model. Hello, uh, my name is Jesse Driver. I am a teacher at the Green
2: School Bali. I've been there for three years. I teach in the middle school a math teacher. I teach a sustainable class called thematics and I also teach in an experiential block
3: called Jalan Jalan which means to take a walk. Very cool. Um, How is the Green School in Bali uh, different than other schools that you've worked at? The Green School in Bali is um, architecturally
2: very interesting. It is made out of bamboo pole structures with grass roofs that are completely open to uh, nature. And, and so that is the thing that people notice when they take the tour as being very different. Uh, as It allows for a lot of distractions, actually. Sometimes there's uh, animals that can come into your room and lizards and stuff, and lots of bugs and wasps and snakes even, but uh, the uh, that... That's really funny, like, to have to clear out animals from your room. Uh, And so that's a huge difference. Uh, The other big difference from the other schools I've been at is that it's a school that's more open to experimental teaching and learning practices. And that's where I draw a lot of uh, pleasure and and energy from uh, getting to do new things with awesome people from all around the world. So we have regular classes that would be very familiar to anybody. We have PE and art and math and literacy. And those, I mean, there's interesting things you can do with those classes, but uh, the content is very similar to anywhere that you'd go to. In the afternoons, we have a sustainability class called Thematics, and the sustainability model that we use is called the compass model. and We look at any, any kind of topic at all and we place it in the middle of the compass. So the traditional compass with north, east, south, and west is changed to the sustainability compass uh, and we apply these so that N is nature, the E is economy, the S is society, and the W is is well-being, as in personal well-being. And so when we look at issues, it could be any number of issues, we try to look at it through those four different lenses. Uh, it, how does the issue affect nature? How does it affect our economy? How does it affect our society? And how does it affect ourselves? And so those, uh, those different lenses provide a lot of different uh, questions that just arise naturally and a lot of avenues for
3: for learning and I kind of suggest uh, to anybody to try uh, thinking about issues using the sustainability compass it's an interesting activity. Okay Um... And if you could kind of define a green school, we've gone around asking some students in our school and teachers just what is a green school because, well, we're not exactly sure either, but um, how how would you kind of answer that question, what is a green school to you? Well, I've noticed that a lot of schools uh, talk about green. It's a new thing that's on radar, and that's a good thing that people think about it. Uh, my previous school that I was at had solar-powered water heaters for showers. Uh, and so that's, that's one way you can be green, is you can try to uh, put in infrastructure that's based on renewable resources. Uh, the other ways you can be green are trash, short, trash sorting projects and trash reduction, uh, trying to eliminate the idea of one-use things like plastic bottles Uh, trying to eradicate those sources of trash from from the school if they're there. Uh, Those are ways that you can be green.
2: Uh, One of the ways, I think for me, the way that I like to think about green and engaging kids is to try to uh, get them to see that our culture is going to, well, I don't know how to put it lightly, our culture might kill us. Uh, the, the way that we have developed uh, our consuming habits and our waste habits is there's only one way it can end, and we haven't, uh, and it's not going to be pretty. And so we haven't really thought ahead as a society, uh, but you can as an individual. And so I think that it's very important that teachers like you, you two, are in schools Trying to alert kids to ways of living that are that are healthy for themselves and healthy for the planet. So I think that's the biggest part of a green school. Is uh, any school that wants to say we're a green school, you have to
1: have teachers
2: highlighting the importance of being green to students and getting the students activated and interested in.
3: Whatever, many number of projects or personal habit changing, whatever it might be. And as a teacher who's worked in in multiple schools internationally, and um, do you find that through kind of curriculum and the focus of like what you mentioned, the the sustainability compass? Do you, have a, do you have a, you know, general feeling that your students are kind of um, being kind of change agents or it's, you know, when they leave the green school that they are kind of better equipped or a more kind of sustainable-minded um, citizen?
2: Certainly some of them do. Some of them come away very, very different animals. And that's, um, so even just going home for Christmas and then they hang out with their friends, and then they come back and they actually feel like disconnected. They, they don't talk about the same stuff that their friends talk about. They have um, developed all these interests and this awareness that their friends don't have. And it can actually make them feel isolated in, to some degree. Um, so that's especially for the older kids. The junior high kids that I teach, I used to teach high school there as well, uh, and I and one student in particular stands out. He came, he came back just dumbfounded at the lack of awareness among his friends, and the the middle school students, yes, they're also going away with uh, with new
3: new ways of thinking and uh, and and new awareness. Not all of them but a, a, large, a large portion of our students go away with way, way, way more uh, green awareness. Okay, that's interesting. I noticed um, we were kind of digging through a bit of your, I'm not saying curricular document, curriculum documents, but through your website, and that um, something that runs through your, your curriculum is the United Nations Sustainability Goals. Would you? Yeah. How familiar would you say your like teachers and students are with those goals for you know sustainability for twenty thirty? I think they are so. Well, personally, I can't list all. I think there's seventeen of them. Uh, But we, what we do is we we split up the different goals between each of the three middle school years, and so all seventeen are covered. Within six-week blocks of inquiry, through sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade, because what I teach is the poverty block, and uh, we teach
2: about—I think it's called end poverty—and there's one about uh, women's empowerment, and in seventh in seventh grade they do ones that are related to health and well-being, and in sixth grade they do. Uh, they do sustainable development goals developed uh, related to water. And so there's kind of a water theme to grade 6, kind of a health and well-being theme to grade 7, and kind of a social issues theme to grade 8. We came up with a roadblock, something that you were mentioning
4: at the beginning, the difference between being a green learner and just saying, like, oh, we're a green school. um. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, like I've sometimes when you ask a kid what makes you green,
2: they'll say, "Well, I go to green school." And so that's actually that it's almost a block in itself. And in, in some, every kid is so different, you know. And so I think it really comes back to uh, it does the school support teachers who want to help kids think in a different way? in a way that's uh, either, so you can use a lot of words to describe it, sustainable, friendly. For the little kids at our school, like kindergarten, they, call, they have a word called echophilia, where they try to
3: get the kids to love Mother Earth. And they do that through play, through performances, through songs. So, I don't know. D- different for everybody, different for everybody in every age group. Uh, getting over the blocks is also going to be different for everybody. Anything that you think is worth sharing um, uh, for us, it can be whatever—very positive, negative, neutral, just anything. Uh, final thoughts, I guess. Okay. Well, I suppose in my mind, the the final thought is that you don't have to be a student at the Green School or a teacher at Green School in order to be concerned about the future, and concerned about our planet, concerned about the atmosphere, concerned about plastics in the oceans. And that comes from, in my opinion, that it best comes from passionate teachers
2: who are able to model uh, the behavior personally and give students uh, these, the exposure to the appropriate, whatever it is, the appropriate topic that will make that certain kid start to see things in a new way and that to- and teachers are really good at that, they're really good at identifying interest areas in kids and it could be horses, it could be uh, viruses it could be sharks, it could be poetry, it could be air and or, yeah, I don't know, whatever, whatever a, a good teacher who cares about it will find a way to get Kids engaged, and it's a very personal thing. The curriculum can help. The curriculum can be there to support it, but really, it takes dialogue with students. It takes, uh, it takes students. They need to see that it matters to an adult, and they need to see that it's possible to to make a change and positive to work towards, or possible to
3: work towards um, a more positive healthy future. So how do we tip the scales? How do we ensure that every student, teacher, and parent who walk through our doors are hyper-conscious about how their daily choices impact the environment? In my hometown, probably like 10 or 15 years ago, we went through a process of all garbage, compost, or something that had to be separated. You know, 10, 15 years ago, you put a black bag of garbage on the street curb, and that was it, it disappeared. You could put anything in that. Um, I know that's still happening in, in places around the
4: world. Most of most in Mexico. But yeah.
3: just, I don't remember from my own mom, just like, just getting into the habit of like separating everything. It was annoying at first, but now like, everything's cleaner and I can't imagine or she can't imagine going back the other way. Just something doesn't feel right of putting everything into the same bag a black bag and putting it out to the trash. So um, it's, we know better now. And uh, so, but how do we do the same thing uh, for like single use plastics and for, for sustainable food choices? So how do we tip it? You make a small change and then it becomes a habit and then it becomes normal. And I
4: think that's what we need to kind of move forward on. To recap, we talked today about the history of the green parties. at least we give you a lot of boring information about it. And uh, we, most importantly, tackle the idea of schools and education as a means of doing versus knowing. A little bit of trivia for you folks listening. Since I'm a librarian, let's talk about books. The first book to raise awareness about the dangers of industrialism versus the environment was called Silent Spring, and it was published in 1962. That's interesting because uh, I was having a conversation with my
3: wife about the direction of the podcast and we were just, I think, talking quickly about, you know, one of the, the biggest moments or where was the starting point of this green movement and green revolution and she definitely uh, pointed my attention to, to that book and at that time, that was a huge kind of... I don't know, it played a huge role in opening up people to...
4: I, I really to just researched the fact and I had no idea. <laughs> but the, the interesting thing about it is that, well, the extraordinary thing about it is that the book talked about something that was called DDT. That is literally, especially for me, unpronounceable. But it's a chemical. It is a chemical that it was very dangerous to the wildlife and to human health in general. And it was broadly used. It, it was just a pesticide, and because of the book, DDT, again, there's like thirty letters, <laughs> thirty different, like letters in that world, um, was banned just because of how profound was the effect of the book on the on the people of the sixties. Um, such an impact to the public uh, uh, alchocracy, I guess that uh, um, I, I, I'm just. Happy that uh, the DDT was banned instead of the book. Well, it's interesting.
3: I'm just checking just checking some math here, but it did take 10 years. So the book was published in 62 and it was DDT was banned in 72. Uh, anyway, check out the webpage 17 Goals to Transform Our World from the United Nations uh, site. There are four major categories for you to take a look or to take action today. From the lazy person guide to things you can do at home, outside, at
4: work. You'll be surprised, you're already doing a bunch of them and the rest, they're not that hard.
3: Yeah, so check it out. 17 goals to transform our
4: world. It's pretty its interesting stuff. I guess that's it for now. Um, thank you for listening to us. Uh, I'm Jose Alvarez. And I'm Corey Austin. This is Beyond Our Bell.